Thrice the brinded cat hath mewed, Thrice and once the hedgepig whined. Harpier cries, Tis time, tis time. Double, double, toil and trouble, Fire burn and cauldron bubble. What would you say if I told you that one of the greatest works of theatre was born from witchcraft? You probably wouldn't be surprised. It is a famous play, after all, one whose very title has carried a witch's curse for over 400 years. Uttering the name aloud in a theatre supposedly has been known to cause technical difficulties, financial ruin, and even death. Would it affect me if I said it in here? After all, this recording booth is my theatre. Well, let's give it a go, shall we? The play in question is William Shakespeare's Macbeth. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Greetings, gentles all. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. My name is Alastair Murden, and I will be both the chorus and the players in this evening's humble performance. In this show, we tell stories illustrating the enduring power of these beliefs. Some reveal horrifying truths about history, and others reveal inexplicable fixations with bad luck appearing seemingly out of the blue. But if you want to know the origin of a superstition, speak, demand, we'll answer. Today's superstition is one that has stalked the theatrical world for centuries and persists to this very day. It involves a play that may or may not have been cursed by a witch during its earliest performances. For more cautious performers than I, this piece is known simply as The Scottish Play or The Bard's Play. It's one of Shakespeare's most popular works despite, or perhaps because of, its bewitched history. Performers throughout the theatrical world still refuse to utter the play's title for fear they will bring the curse upon themselves. Even without making this critical error, countless productions are known to have experienced strange difficulties in bringing this work to the stage. In a moment, I'm going to tell you the story of a production that did make it to the stage, but didn't come back for an encore. Coming up, things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
It may have been an independent production, but the marquee outside the theatre was as bold as brass. The Lamplighters present Macbeth, starring Scott Cushing and Agatha Van Doren, opens this Friday. These names might be obscure now, but at the time, Scott Cushing and Agatha Van Doren were both well-known in their own separate circles. Scott was a B-movie superstar, mostly featured in low-budget horror films, and Agatha was a West End legend, whose return to indie theatre was a personal favour to the director of this play. It opened to record ticket sales, and everything was looking up. Until the reviews came in. After their first weekend, the cast commiserated in a local pub called The Knife and Fiddle. Between them, they read a review in the town crier which bore the smug headline, So foul and fair a play I have not seen. The critic was complimentary of Agatha, whose Lady Macbeth made the rafters practically rattle with passion. They reserved all their venom for Scott's interpretation of the title role. Scott knew he wasn't anywhere near Agatha's caliber. He had so much to learn about speaking in verse and barely even knew what iamic pentameter was. Even so, it stung to hear his performance described as wooden and inert on stage. Cheer up, old sport. It's just part of the game. That was what Bill Edson, who played Macduff, considered to be comforting words. Scott wished Bill hadn't said anything. The Brit was a condescending hack who thought of himself as the company's Falstaff, all fun and games, coasting on his confidence and deep baritone when on stage. Scott smiled faintly and returned to his pint. Any movie star worth his salt would be spending these evenings partying the reviews away and collecting groupies from his youthful fan club. But Scott was not that kind of actor. Tonight, he had a date with their dramaturge. For those who don't work in the theatre, a dramaturge is a literary expert and advisor employed by a theatre company. Scott left the pub early to return to the empty theatre, where an anachronistic picnic blanket had been set out on stage in between the grim Scottish castles. Waiting for him was the dramaturge employed by the lamplighters, Emily Jordan. Emily was, without competition, the smartest person in the entire company. And to Scott's great relief, she never coddled him. You could have been worse, she said. You weren't bad, you were just uncomfortable. Stage presence isn't something that just happens, you know. Everyone has to work through the kinks of their first performance. Scott had a quip ready about how she'd know all about working through his kinks, but self-pity stifled it. Instead, he sighed. Maybe if they hadn't paired me with Agatha and Bill, I wouldn't seem so out of my depth. Emily laughed. Oh, cheer up. We've got plenty of performances to go. Besides, this is far from the worst thing that ever happened to a production of the Scottish play. Scott knew he was being a wet blanket by fixating on his performance, but he had to ask. Oh, yeah? What is? Well... In 1849, it killed around 22 people. That's more than most serial killers. Scott almost choked on his wine. You made that up. I'm the dramaturge, dummy. It's my job to know this play inside and out. I'm not kidding. 
In the mid-1800s, these two famous actors, one British and one American, starred in competing productions of the Scottish play in New York City. Audiences literally rioted. Really? People cared that much about Macbeth? Emily didn't answer. When Scott looked up, he saw an expression of shock frozen on her face. He rolled his eyes. Oh, come on. Don't tell me you're into that cursed play nonsense. Emily was deadly serious when she replied. Once you've been in theatre long enough, it stops mattering what you believe. You just stop taking chances. Out of courtesy as much as caution. Scott held his hands up in mock defeat. Okay, okay, I'll do the ritual thing. Just finish the story first. Eyeing him warily, Emily continued, clearly in a rush to finish. Alright, so... It wasn't about the play itself, it was the actors playing the parts and their interpretation of the roles. The British guy, William McCready, was really popular among rich audiences. His American rival, Edwin Forrest, was more of a ruggedly handsome man of the people. You know where this is going. Mutual hecklers started going from theatre to theatre, ruining performances and getting on everyone's nerves. Finally, it all came to a head outside the theatre during one of McCready's shows. Militia tried to break it up the only way they knew how, and soon around 22 people were dead from gunfire. Meanwhile, McCready was so shaken by this whole ordeal, he fled America for the rest of his career. Scott fell silent. He wondered if he or Bill could inspire that kind of passionate rivalry among fans. He could see the headlines now. Hammer Horror vs. Fringe Theatre who has the better take on the Scottish tragedy? Emily cleared her throat quietly. Scott remembered the curse. Right, of course. I'll be right back. He skipped out of the theatre promptly to do that silly ritual. Breaking the Macbeth curse is simple enough. The person who said the name merely has to leave the theatre, spin around three times, spit over your shoulder, swear, and knock on the door to be let back in. Scott had done this enough times in rehearsal to have the routine down pat. But this time, a low cackling stopped him halfway through his third spin. It was Agatha Van Doren lurking by the stage door entrance. Smoke from a half-finished cigarette clung to her furs, making her look like a ghost. I thought you'd be here. Scott groaned internally. He knew he was going to have to apologize and make it good. Their catastrophe of a production was his fault, and they both knew it. Look, Agatha, I'm sorry about how it went this weekend. I can't... I will do better. For the rest of the run, I'm going to eat, drink, sleep, and breathe this play. Agatha laughed again. <laughs> the best thing you can do for this performance is to stop spinning. Agatha took a pull on her cigarette, the faint orange glow turning her eyes into burning coals. Do you know why I'm smoking right now? It's a rhetorical question, don't answer. No actor who takes their craft seriously would smoke at all, much less at the beginning of a run. I only ever return to this filthy habit when I think there's no hope for a production. My lungs are my instrument, and they're wasted sharing the stage with you. She took a step forward, 
and leaned towards Scott. You stop spinning right now, and the curse of Macbeth will come for our next performance. With any luck, we'll close early. Then I'll be free to go back to the West End, and you can go back to doing whatever it was you did before you thought you could make it in the theatre. Without another word, the award-winning Dutchwoman turned and vanished into the mist. Scott was troubled when he went back inside. He didn't believe in the superstition, and he doubted Agatha did either. She was probably just trying some kind of theatrical mind game on him so that his acting would improve. He tried to forget about this encounter for the rest of the evening. He talked and laughed with Emily, and for a brief moment, it seemed like the scathing reviews and the impending ruin of his career didn't matter so much. But when the end of the night drew in, he politely declined to go back to Emily's flat with her. He had to think some things over. Before they parted, Emily said, You're a great actor, Scott. I'm not just saying that. By the end of this run, it won't matter what the critics said. Scott smiled and went on his way, guilt gnawing at his gut. He still hadn't told Emily about his encounter with Agatha outside the theatre, or that he had taken his co-star's advice. The fog was thick that night as Scott went home. Though they were far from the nearest moor, it made Scott dwell on his character. There had to be something he wasn't quite getting about Macbeth himself, an essential quality that made him harder to play than the grotesque horror villains he was used to. It was more than just the big words and the metered verse. It was the witchcraft itself. Scott just didn't buy into it. And maybe that was the problem. Perhaps to fully understand the character of Macbeth, Scott Cushing would have to believe in the play's curse. He lay down as soon as he got home, but he stayed awake staring at the ceiling. One of the lines forced its way into his head and repeated itself over and over. Sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. Coming up, our poor player struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Hi listeners, I'm thrilled to tell you about a new Spotify original from Parcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the story. The second week of The Lamplighter's Macbeth was upon them. The novelty of a horror movie actor headlining their production had been enough to sustain the first weekend, but the second would rely on more than the marquee. Their director, Sean Ennels, drilled them ruthlessly through the week. The lead actors went to bed exhausted every night and woke up exhausted the next day. But Scott Cushing, who played Macbeth, 
was ready to meet any challenge. The relentless workday was intimately familiar to a man whose bread and butter used to be 16-hour shoot days in hostile and unsafe locations. 12 hours in a theatre was a cakewalk by comparison. Fair is fair, he supposed. No, that's not right. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. There's no getting this dialogue out of your hair. The night before their reopening, Scott found himself exchanging blows with Bill Edson in preparation for their climactic sword fight. With prop swords, of course. Come on, Scott! Bill shouted in his infuriating faux Scottish accent. Don't hold back me! Really put your passion into the swing! Scott hesitated, looking over at the director. Sean was not paying them any attention. He was off to the side, arguing with Emily about the Hecate scene. Emily was insisting that those sequences were added by the late Elizabethan dramatist Thomas Middleton and therefore didn't fit with the tone of the rest of the play. A plastic sword rebounded off of Scott's helm, shocking him back to the scene. When Scott looked back, he saw daggers in Bill's smile. The man was clearly agitated. Don't let your wee girlfriend distract you, you pansy. This is life and death. Bill's taunts only got worse as their rehearsal continued. Scott was just marking the fight for memory's sake, but Bill was going all out, as if he was really on the battlefield. Finally, Scott backed off. Bill, relax. We've done this fight a hundred times before. We shouldn't be risking injury right before the show. Bill spat at Scott's feet, dropping his character voice. At least then there'd be some passion in the play. I'm trying to beat life into your performance, old sport. Nothing else seemed to work. Bill stormed off toward the green room, leaving Scott to deal with the multitude of other issues he had to deal with before the show. Scott's confidence wasn't much higher when the night of the show approached. It felt like he wasn't just facing Macbeth's enemies on the stage, he would be facing his own enemies in the audience. Viewers who read the poor reviews and came to see him flail about on stage anyways. No matter how much time he spent bracing for it over the week, he just wouldn't be ready until he stepped out into those lights. Fear gripped him as he waited in the wings. He tried to push it off, but it just wasn't working. Fear gave way to panic. What if this second wave of audience members were there to laugh at him, to prove Agatha right about his lack of talent? He muttered under his breath over and over. Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. Anything to hasten the end of this inevitable train wreck. At least when a movie performance was bad, you'd just move on to the next take. In theatre, it was like being forced to take a driving test over and over and over. A light tapping on his shoulder brought him back to reality. It was Emily. Her binder full of notes was clutched close to her chest. Are you okay? Where have you been all evening? Scott wryly replied, killing swine. When she didn't react to the quip, he added, I'm fine. I've only thrown up three times today, below average. Emily stepped up to him. She couldn't kiss him for fear of smudging the makeup, but what she said was the next best thing. I don't know what Sean told you, but forget about the text analysis and the words. It's about you and the story. 
Remember, Shakespeare included what was believed to be actual witch spells in his dialogue. I need you to shock this audience the way Jacobean audiences would have been shocked by that revelation. You know what I mean? Scott nodded. And then he was alone again, bracing for his cue. Scene three always came a lot faster than he wanted. But in a moment, he was stepping up beside his friend Banquo onto the foggy moor. Wait, no. Stage. Something was different. A low fog was hanging over the footlights. The air was thick with it. Nothing like the sterile stage of rehearsal. When Scott spoke, his delivery was almost fearful. So foul and fair a day I have not seen. When the witches came, there was something different about them as well. No longer was he speaking with the three lovely old ladies of the stage he recognized. The beings that spoke their lines were strange and misshapen in a way he could not quite describe. Their voices even sounded warped. Each decision he made on stage had a weight he never felt before. His choice to kill the King of Scotland, to betray Banquo, the appearance of Banquo's ghost even, it all chilled him to the very core. It felt as if an unspoken spell had been cast over him. What is it those witches do? A deed without a name. He could see his own change reflected in the eyes of his scene partners, Agatha Van Doren, no, Lady Macbeth, looked on him with a gaze of violent passion that hadn't existed on opening night. Scott Cushing, the actor, diminished as the play went on. Macbeth, the new King of Scotland, no longer feared the audience. He wanted nothing more than to stay on this stage as long as possible and relish in the power he had attained. The crowd was nothing more than the people of Scotland, who follow the most powerful man on the throne. Then, the horrible news came, that his queen was dead. Macbeth's world shattered. His vision swam as he saw his entire kingdom falling apart around him. Out, out, brief candle, lies but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. But the player within Macbeth was long silent. The man who remained had nothing left but to fight bear-like for his place in the spotlight. When Macduff came for him, he spoke the words the bard had written, but no memory of his choreography remained. The blows between the two men were furious, their blades ringing like actual steel, and then, it was all over. Macbeth, who had walked the stage thousands upon thousands of times, was somehow victorious. His enemy, whose victory the script foretold, lay vanquished at his feet. No, not his enemy. His colleague. That wasn't Macduff who lay before him. It was Bill Edson. A pretentious thespian, not the vengeful Thane of Fife. Finally awakened from his dream, Scott's gaze fell to his hands. His plastic sword had broken in two. 
the now jagged edge dripped with blood. Scott let the once harmless prop fall to the stage as realization finally took hold. In the throes of his best performance, he had killed a fellow actor. The incident became the stuff of local legend. Actor slays co-star in passionate performance, read a particularly blunt headline in the town crier. The article beneath described the events using words shamelessly appropriated from the first scene of the play. Scott Cushing, disdaining the script with his brandished steel, unseemed poor Bill Edson from the knave to the chops. The lamplighters attempted to soldier on with a couple of understudies, and the play did sell a decent number of tickets, but the novelty fizzled. The production closed a few weeks later. Scott was unaware of this. He went to prison without complaint. After all, there were hundreds of witnesses to his act of murder. The prop sword snapping had been an accident, but Scott had had plenty of time to stop and no one in the audience doubted that he struck to kill. When his guilt died down, he started to pay close attention to the lamplighters' careers. Sean Ennels left to direct television for the BBC. Agatha had a long overdue run on Broadway that ended in her losing three consecutive Tony Awards. Emily Jordan began writing plays for fringe festivals whose glowing reviews always made Scott smile. He dwelt as little as he could on the show itself, even turning down a chance to star in the prison production of The Merchant of Venice. That play was not cursed as far as he knew, but he suspected that he was. Sometimes, late at night, Scott wondered about those precious moments between him going on stage and the event that ruined his life. He wondered if he truly had given a great performance. He was released relatively recently following a psychiatric evaluation. You might have heard it mentioned in local tabloids or a true crime podcast or two. It's said that he even has gone back to acting, appearing in small plays in Ireland. He only gave one interview after his release, during which he offered a peculiar answer about his mental state. When the interviewer asked him, does the character of Macbeth stick with you even after all these years? To that, Scott smiled sadly. Of course it does, old sport. Bill Edson may have played Macduff, but he really wound up being my Banquo in the end. The interviewer inquired further, but Scott did not elaborate, simply telling him to read the play if he's confused. The interviewer noted that throughout most of the interview, Scott rarely looked him in the eye and instead kept his gaze on an empty space over the interviewer's shoulder, occasionally nodding as if to acknowledge an unseen guest. Perhaps, like the ghost of Banquo, Scott Cushing's scene partner never really left the stage.
Written for the witchcraft-obsessed King James I sometime between 1606 and 1607, Macbeth's cursed reputation has helped secure its fame and its infamy. The story goes that local witches were so offended by Shakespeare using actual incantations that they cursed the play. Though no concrete sources exist for these claims, it is often said that the original production was mired in mishaps. They say the actor playing Lady Macbeth died suddenly, and Shakespeare himself was forced to take the role. It is also said that the performers accidentally used real daggers instead of fake ones when murdering King Duncan. This second rumor was probably conceived by someone who'd never actually seen the play, because the doomed king dies offstage in between scenes. Since then, tragic performances linked with this play are numerous. I mentioned the Astor Place Riot, where competing productions of this play resulted in over 20 deaths and many injuries, theater fires, near accidents, suicides, and box office bombs have all been tied to the cursed play. One of the most modern, if mundane, examples of the cursed work comes from the set of the 2018 horror film Hereditary. In an Ask Me Anything session on Reddit, director Ari Aster mentioned that one of the actors warned him not to say the name. His response was to say it immediately, in defiance of the superstition. The very next scene, a light fixture exploded. As usual, it's more than likely that these are coincidences, examples of human tendency towards pattern recognition. But you see, perhaps what makes theatre a breeding ground for such curses is the mystery around performance itself. To be an actor is to give into the uncertainty of another person's life and step into their shoes. When you truly lose yourself in a character, it can be a scary and uncomfortable feeling. So it's no small wonder that we are a superstitious lot. Superstitions speak to actors' unique relationship with the unknown. To confront them is to confront the uncertainty of the future, just like stepping out onto a stage with your audience shrouded in the dark. Perhaps the bard put it best. Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. In the meantime, I'll see you tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden.
Listeners, don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.